soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Welcome to Top of History. I'm your host, Scott, here with my wife and historian, Jen. Hello. On this podcast, we give you insights to our history-inspired world travels, YouTube channel journey, and examine history through deeper conversations with the curious, the explorers, and the history lovers out there. So, Jen, I'm excited because we are starting our road trip series. For those listening, if you follow us on Instagram or YouTube, you might know we traveled for about two and a half weeks, and we saw a ton of history all across the West. So to celebrate that, Jen, I have a history joke for you. Okay. <laughs> what kind of tea did the American colonists want at the Boston Tea Party? Um, I don't know. Liberty. <laughs> so if, for those listening, if you like that joke, or perhaps if you have a better one, leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening. The reviews really do help us the show grow. And you know that the History Channel doesn't do jokes like that. <laughs> Theirs are probably better. So help us out and let's get more people listening to talk with history. Before we go into the main subject tonight, this is again, this is going to be our first stop on our road trip. I do, we did get another five star review on the podcast. This is someone that I actually know, so I'm going to read this out. This is from Jennifer Medeiros Fit, is the is the name. Five stars, hands down, the best history podcast around. Scott and Jen are a dynamic duo and an absolute delight to listen to. My wife and I have been using the podcast and YouTube episodes to help enhance our trips. The tips are so helpful. This is one of those shows that just puts me in a good mood. The more somber topics are treated with reverence and respect they deserve. But beyond that, the show is just plain fun. 
I strongly recommend to anyone looking for a great podcast that is extremely informative without being overly stuffy or academic. Jason M. So that's the husband and wife. Uh, he actually, <laughs> I used to work with him. Um, he actually, he texted me that the other day and just said he's really been enjoying the show. So uh, Jason and Jennifer, thank you so much for the review. It really does mean a lot to get the feedback like that because right now our, our listenership is is limited. We're, we're growing and, and those, those reviews really do, really do help us. So, so thank you so much, guys. What, what are we talking about? What's kind of the first place we stopped on our road trip? Well, after we stopped in Nashville, we were driving across Kansas and we saw signs for the Eisenhower um, Presidential Museum and Library. And we're like, oh my gosh, it's right along the interstate. Yeah, we hadn't planned on stopping We hadn't there. planned on stopping there, but it was, it's right off the interstate. And it was a perfect time stop with our kids. And so we stopped at the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum. That's right. So, and I don't think too many commonly know that he is from the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Yeah, he is from Abilene, Kansas. So that's where we stopped. We stopped, uh, it's basically the middle of Kansas. And he moved there when he was two years old. He was born in Texas, yep. but he there's his family moves there when he's two. So he considers it his hometown. Yeah. He was born, I believe, in Denison, Texas. Denison, Texas, um, October 14th. 1890? Um, 1890. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then we, we kind of, we get off the freeway. We're like, hey, this actually works out perfectly for us. It's right. Like it's 10 It was right on our lunch break. Mm -hmm. It's it's a few minutes off the freeway, yes. off the 70. And so we, we drive in there and we are smack in the middle of Kansas. There's, there's not much out there. No. <laughs> and it is, it's one of those towns, like the thing that it's known for is being the hometown of Dwight, of, of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yeah. So it's Eisenhower's Presidential Library Museum and Boyhood Home. And that's kind of why the museum and library is located there is because it's kind of built around his boyhood home. Right. And um, the address is 200 Southeast 4th Street in Abilene, Kansas. And it's a basically it's, it's a 22 acre spread campus. And you can stop there. Their mission is free. And it's going to encompass a library, a museum. There's a, a chapel where he is buried with his wife and son. And then they have uh, like a visitor center where they have a movie and a gift shop. But they also have a nice kind of garden with a, a statue of him. And of course, his boyhood home. The thing is, is we didn't have a ton of time this because this wasn't planned for us. We didn't go into the museum. We didn't go inside too much of the stuff. The visitor center a little bit. And then we kind of toured around, like you said, the, the larger kind of garden area where the statue was. And we, we saw his resting place. Yeah, we take you outside of everything. We didn't go in the museum or the library. Um, we go to the statue. We go outside the boyhood home, but we go into the place of meditation, right. the burial site, and we go into the visitor center. Yeah, and that's all in the video. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. But kind of st let, let's step back and kind of start from the beginning sure. for, for here. So tell us a little bit about Ike. Ike. So he, again, he's born in Denison, Texas. He's born David Dwight Eisenhower uh, on October 14th, 1890. He's the third of seven boys. Can you imagine? Seven I cannot. Boys. Um, and he's born to Ida Stover and David Eisenhower. So if you recognize David, David, it wasn't long. His mother soon reversed his names to avoid confusion. So we know him as Dwight David Eisenhower, uh, but he was born David Dwight Eisenhower. So it wasn't um, long, two years after he's born, they moved to Abilene, Kansas. And the house that you see there 
they move into in 1898. So he's actually eight years old when he moves into that house. But that is the one that survives. That's his boyhood home. And that house is there all the way up until I think it's 1946 when Ida will pass away. Okay. So all the boys are raised there. Her... His father will pass away there. His mother will pass away in 1946. And 1947, it becomes open to the public. So it's given to the National Park Service. So what you see of that boyhood home is the Eisenhowers were the last to live there. And then after Ida passes, it's open to the public for everyone. And what's interesting about that house is that it's all through the war. So I I mentioned that in the video, like they're going to be getting telegrams as their son is the supreme commander of the Allied forces uh, in Germany. So they're going to be getting all that updates, all those um, telegrams and things along that. They're going to be in that house as that happens. And what's very interesting is Ida was like anti-war. Oh, interesting. She did not believe in the war, but she had some books about war. in the house and he read them as a young kid and he was very interested in it but what actually happened for eisenhower is they don't come from a lot of means right and so he him and his older brother decided we will go to college in tandem you go a year i'll work to pay for you to go i'll go a year and you pay to work while I go and we'll finish college back and forth like that. Kind of think of a It's a Wonderful Life yeah. when him and his brother are like, I'm going to work so to pay for you and you can work, you know. Well, what happens is his brother is, is doing so well. He asks to stay another year. Ike is like, yes, I'll work some more um, to pay for you to stay in college. And then someone says to him, you know, you could go to like the academies for free. And he's like, oh, I never really thought about that. So he applies to the uh, Naval Academy and West Point. Now he's too, he gets an appointment for both, but he's too old at the time to go to the Naval Academy. Oh, no way. So he goes to West Point. So he goes to West Point in 1915 when he actually graduates Abilene High School in 1909. Oh, wow. So he was, he was older going through. Oh, wait. So he graduates in 1915. Okay. So yeah, he's class of 1909. He gets his appointment to West Point in 1911. So two wow. years after he's yeah. graduated. Okay. And then, so he's he's older and he's an average student. He's not, you know. He's like, not top of his he's class. He's not at top he's of his class. He's not MacArthur. Right. Right. The highest ever graduate from West Point, which is interesting because he'll work for MacArthur and they're both five-star generals in the end. But um, so he graduates in 1915 and he does it because it's free. Huh. So you can understand. I mean, that's that's why I went to the Naval yeah. Academy. It's and that's my why par- I got my, par- the, my parents didn't have to pay. Exactly. And that's why I got the ROT scholarship to Penn State. So it, he saw the same means that we saw, right? We're able to get an education through service. That's that's so interesting. And, and it kind of makes me wonder what that conversation was like with his mom, mm-hmm. who's kind of, obviously, we find out later, kind of anti-war. Yeah. Right, and here is his son going to West Point, yes. right? One of the most prestigious military academies in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sure back then, and if you think about it, right, if he's born in 1890 and here it is, you know, let's say 20 years later, right? He goes and approximately when he's 20. That's not that long after that, that mentality of getting your start in the world through the military is still relative, it must be have still been in the culture back then because even think about some of the when we talk about civil war mm-hmm. and american revolution a, a lot of businessmen either went into the military when conflicts happened or they got their start there 
to kind of get themselves established. Absolutely. Like even when you think of Hamilton, he keeps saying, I wish there was a war where we could make our name. Right. Right. Because he has no means. He's coming from no means. So this was a way for young men who wanted to make their name for themselves to really establish themselves in society. And when you think about uh, other people who have done this, I remember Lincoln's son, Robert, he wants to join the Civil War, right? Because even as a gentleman who has means and he's able to go to school, he still wants to be a part of it because this really is at the time, and maybe even so today, men really measured this as your service, as you know, you have established yourself as a man in society, you're defending something, you're part of something, you're, you know, serving your country. Yeah. I mean, and, and obviously military service is still highly respected today, right? And that's gone, mm-hmm. come and gone in waves, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the country, depending on conflicts going on. But back then, I think it was still even more so that old school mentality of seen very, very highly in society is like, oh, you're an army officer or you're a naval officer, right? That's, you know, they do this in movies. Women even sought out, you know, <laughs> oh, he's a captain in the army or the navy or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. So that's interesting that that's uh that he went to West Point. Yeah. So he went to West Point. Um it's not even long so he's graduating in nineteen fifteen. He gets married in nineteen sixteen. So he m- meets uh, Mamie Dowd. She is they meet in Texas. She's from Iowa. And you know what? If you see young pictures of Dwight mm-hmm. Eisenhower, he is a handsome man. He is a very handsome man. I could look it up and look watch our video. Yeah. But you you look up some young videos of him and his wife, like when he's still at the their military wedding academy. Picture, yeah, he is a good looking guy. If you look at their wedding picture, she's sitting and he's standing with his arms crossed. He didn't want to wrinkle his uniform. Yeah, that's why he's not sitting down. But uh, yeah, he's very handsome. Yeah. And they get married, I think, in someone's living room. So it's of that time again where marriages happen relatively quickly. And as you can imagine, World War One. We're on the cusp of World War One here. So he uh, doesn't get to go over for World War One, but he ends up training a tank crew and he will do that in 1918. He will get stationed outside of Gettysburg and that'll be more relevant later. Uh, okay. When we get to the Eisenhower Gettysburg, Gettysburg Ranch. So it's a, it's an area he always loved and that he's stationed out there training a tank crew. And then, in, you know, he's going to, of course, work his way up in the military by World War II, you know, he's chief of staff, he's chief of staff from MacArthur. And then he becomes Supreme Allied Commander of the Expeditionary Forces for Germany. Yep. And that's when he becomes a five star general uh, in 1944. But he's a part of two big campaigns that really make his name Operation Torch in North Africa, a very big tank driven operation and then d-day invasion of normandy in 1944 if you're listening and you haven't seen our video on this i actually found i think it was a cbs interview where he goes back with walter cronkite to normandy 20 Mm -hmm. years after d-day yes and so it's really really neat so i I put that footage in the video and I, i highly encourage you to go watch it because it's really neat to see eisenhower I mean, he's talking about all these movements. He's talking about the operation. He's talking about all this stuff like he remembered it yesterday. I went over to a field from which the uh, airborne, the American airborne, started out. Now, I couldn't go to all these fields because there were many of them. But I did go into the 101st Division, and um, it was a very fine experience. They were getting ready, all camouflaged, and their faces blackened and all this. 
And then they saw me, and of course they'd recognize me. They said, "Now quit worrying, General. We'll take care of this thing for you." And that kind of of uh, thing was uh, a good feeling. Yeah, and what I really appreciated about that interview, and we'll talk about this more, what what he what he says is important to him. So he has two sons, and his first son, Adowd, which is his wife's maiden name, uh, is born a year after they're married. And Dowd will actually pass away at three years old from scarlet fever. Eisenhower is reluctant to ever discuss his death. And that is when I talked about the place of meditation where Eisenhower is buried with his wife. Their son is also buried there. Son was initially buried in Denver, Colorado. But when they're both uh, interred there in Abilene, Kansas, they reinter their son with them. And when they have a second son, John, who's born in 1922, and he graduates from West Point on D-Day. 1944 and that's what Eisenhower says he remembers right I remember D-Day but I remember thinking of the young men who are doing this who are actually in this operation and I think of my son because it's not he's so tied to it not only is he ordering men to this fight his son is going to be a part of this fight and this is his only surviving child so it's for me I just it says a lot about the man that that's what he remembers about that day. And the quote that I really love, like when you think that this is happening in 1944 and you're going to actually get the surrender of Germany in May of 1945, a month later, he's going to give the quote. The proudest thing I can claim is that I am from Abilene. He says that in June of 1945. So a month after the, the, German surrender for World War II, that's the proudest thing he's, it, to me, it just says a lot about the character of the man. And so to, to be in Abilene, Kansas, and see that place that he's proud of, to see where he's really tethered and anchored, it, it does say a lot about who he is. And I appreciated being there and being a part of that. Yeah, hearing his perspective in that interview, and it was a 90-minute interview, and I didn't end up watching the whole thing. I tried to find some of the interesting bits for our video, but hearing his perspective on what he thought about, like you said, his son graduating from West Point on D-Day, mm-hmm. the day that this is happening, and he basically says... Walter, this D-Day has a very special meaning for me. My mind goes back so often to this fact. On D-Day, my own son graduated from West Point. And uh, after his training uh, with his division, he came over with the 71st Division. But that was some time after this event. But on the very day he was graduating, these men came here, British and our other allies, Americans, to storm these beaches for one purpose only, not to gain anything for ourselves, not to fulfill any ambitions that America had for conquest, but just to, pre- to preserve freedom. They're not doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for glory. They're doing it for freedom. Yes. And, and just kind of hearing that perspective from him, again, this was 20 years after the fact, right? So 64. Yes. Um, was really moving watching that. And so, again, I highly encourage you to kind of go watch our video because that's a really neat piece of that interview to kind of hear directly from the man himself. I, I wanted to bring up 
uh, some other things about Eisenhower as well. He will be the 34th president of the United States from 1953 to 1961. So he's the president right after Truman, right after World War II. And then JFK is going to be after him. So you think we have like, it's kind of like out with the old and with the new sure. with JFK. But him and JFK actually got along very well. And Eisenhower, Eisenhower is a two-term president, 1953 to 1961. So you think eight years he's president of the United States. I there's a lot of uh, opinions about Eisenhower and maybe some follies that he had. But the two things I really remember about his presidency for me is the civil rights of 1957 when he uh, brought the army troops in to enforce the federal orders to integrate Little Rock, Kansas Mm. or Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. To me, that said a lot about the man. Plus, we were in Newport, Rhode Island at the house that he was playing golf at when he grabbed the phone and called in the federal troops. Oh, I don't, I yeah, don't I remember he was that. playing golf on the golf course when he was here and like they're creating a ruckus down there. And he's like, okay, I'm not dealing with this. Federal troops are going to go in and get these kids into the school. Wow. So he's like doing this on the golf course, which he got a lot of criticism for the golf and then um, the interstate system. So we were on the interstate system stopping to see Eisenhower when Eisenhower really is the one who started the interstate system in America. And it's, you know, it's officially known as the Eisenhower interstate system. And for him, he saw the importance of the Autobahn in Germany and how much it really connected the country that he came back to America and in and uh, installed that here in our country. So those are the two things I really think of when I think of the Eisenhower presidency, the Eisenhower uh, Gettysburg Ranch. Yes. So we have a video from there. We do. That was actually our first video mm-hmm. on him was so, you going out there. And doing yes. That. So there's other things that we've kind of connected ourselves with Eisenhower. They buy this ranch outside of Gettysburg because again, he's trained there. He likes the area. It's close to DC. It's close enough. And maybe as a military spouse has never had a home where she can display the things they buy from different countries or the place they're stationed. Yeah, and she, we, we totally get that. We totally get that. <laughs> yeah. So she asked for a place where we can have that, even if we're still moving, because this is before he becomes president, we can come back to and I can have a house that I can decorate. So in 1950, they buy this ranch right outside of Gettysburg. I mean, it's like literally adjacent to the battlefield. And the National Park Service takes care of it today. So it's like you can visit Gettysburg Visitor Center and they'll say, oh, this is uh, Gettysburg, um, the Eisenhower Ranch. It's open today too. You can take a bus over from there. So in 1950, they buy this farm, Gettysburg Farm. uh, And it's their retreat, even when he's in office as president. So when he comes into the presidency, they will go to the Gettysburg farm as a retreat. And as a result, Khrushchev will visit them there. Churchill will visit them there. Nixon, his vice president, visits visits him there. Reagan visits him there. there, There's a lot of footage of that. Yeah. So I I put some of that footage, um, I think, in the Gettysburg farm, you know, his his Gettysburg estate video. Mm -hmm. I put the video of Churchill 
it, it, it there's video of him and Churchill driving around yep. on on his farm, you know, showing off his cows because that's you said in the video yeah. that's what he liked he liked to do. He liked to show people, yeah, yeah his was, breeding system for it cows. It was it was really, really neat. And I can see, especially in that area, right? It's so open and so green. It's a beautiful area mm-hmm. out there out there in Gettysburg. I can see why they would want to settle down there. So it kind of reminds me of the boyhood home. Yep. So here's the boyhood home that his family has lived in pretty much their whole life since he's eight until his mother passes away and it goes to National Park Service. So here's the farm, the Gettysburg farm that they will live in after his presidency. They will go and retire to that farm. They That's where they spend the rest of their years until Ike dies and then maybe stays there until she dies. And the very next year, the National Park Service will open it up. Well, and, and I believe and you mentioned this in the, the Gettysburg video that he is the reason that Camp David isn't too far from there, right? Yes. The Camp David that all the presidents kind of go to to retreat. It's named after his grandson. His grandson. So it used to be called Shangri-La. And then he called it Camp David after his grandson. It's still called Camp David today. Yep. And that's Eisenhower's grandson. Yeah. And it's been, it was neat too, the, some of the comments that we got on this video because we, some of our audience you know, I, like you said, everybody's got different opinions, but some of our audience, you know, remember him being around. Mm-hmm. And so some of them reached out, like I think Abel, she comments on yeah. our videos all the time. And she talks about like, and she actually had like a personal experience with him when she was a young girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, they were watching some debate, her and her grandmother or her mother or something like that. And the, she was close enough where... I guess there were the people who were debating or other people in the political parties around were kind of taken with her mother or her grandmother, whoever it was. And the pre- and the pre- she was close enough to the president. The president kind of like said hello to her because mm-hmm. she was the same age as as his grandson. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so she she was very polite and, you know, said hello back. And he just kind of, you know, pat her on the head. And then he she watched the proceedings like with the president, yes. you know, right, right there. So it and then. Uh, I think Rick was someone else who comments on our videos a, a fair amount. And he brought up, like you said, some of the follies yeah. in, in his opinion, some of the things they did with bring, uh, bringing down, you know, certain dictators around the world, right. That led to future events and this, that, and the other. So it's always going to be opinions one side or the other. Absolutely. Um, but even Rick said he still sees him as number three. Oh yeah. Top, top three. Presidents. I mean, I think his, his example was, the interstate highway system. Yeah. He said he'd used, President Eisenhower had used the CIA to depose Prime Minister Mohammed Mozadik um, to overthrow and consolidate the rule of Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. Yeah. And and so bringing down that person actually kind of cleared the way for Ayatollah Khomeini. I know. You know, and then the American hostage crisis in 1979. And then now the Iran revolution. Right. Yeah. And no, nobody can foresee that. You can't foresee you that. You can't foresee that. So, but, but it, everything yeah. has a has a cause and effect. It does. But Eisenhower was so respected, just like you said, that even JFK, Bay of Pigs, is it, it, he still consults with Eisenhower, yep. right? And because Eisenhower is a military man, and we talked about this in my video. Someone tries to correct me and says, "Don't call him General Eisenhower. Call him President Eisenhower." People like to be referred to as the highest rank they ever had. Yes, except for Eisenhower, because Eisenhower actually asked. The standing president, who was John F. Kennedy, can you can you put my name back to General Eisenhower instead of President Eisenhower? I would like to be considered a general. And JFK didn't understand that request, but he did it because even though JFK is a military man himself, but he doesn't rise to the rank of five-star general. And you know there are five five-star generals, and if you can remember, you know it's Brady, Marshall, Arnold, MacArthur. 
and Eisenhower. And so when you're one of five, you can imagine you want to be remembered as that because you're not one of five presidents, right? right. You're 40-something now. Sure. But his statue in Abilene, Kansas, is him in uniform. And we talk a little bit about the jacket he's wearing from the Army is even today referred to as an Eisenhower jacket. Yep, the Ike jacket. So you don't even, like, I really didn't even put two together when two and two together when I was in the military. You know, grab your Eisenhower. Where's my Eisenhower? Like, you just know that's what the jacket is called. But yep. I never really thought it's because of President Eisenhower. And President Eisenhower, or General Eisenhower, is actually buried in full military uniform. Yeah, you do, you do talk about that. And um, again, I think that really speaks to the man that that we got to briefly visit, mm-hmm. right? To briefly visit his his home, smack in the middle of Kansas, Abilene, Kansas. I just It just kind of made me smile the whole time to see this kind of true American story of someone who came from, you know, not much means, right? They moved from Texas to Kansas for whatever reason it was. Mm-hmm. It's not like there was much there in, in Kansas back in the day. There was no presidential library there no. because there was no president from there yet. And here he was, kind of made his way up through West Point, all the way up to five-star general, eventually president, and settled down after that. So it was really, really neat to to visit him and to, to see that and to kind of walk his footsteps, mm-hmm. put that in a video and, and share that with everybody. So for those listening, thank you for listening to this podcast, our first episode on our road trip series. We really do appreciate it. Stick around for the next few weeks. Share this with your friends because we have a whole lot of Western history coming up. Uh-huh. So we kept going West, you know, after we visited Abilene and we've got Buffalo Bill Cody, we've got Wild Bill Hickok and Deadwood and Little Bighorn, all sorts of fun topics coming up. If you want to support the show and you you've enjoy these podcasts, you can support us at talkwithhistory.com slash support. We rely on you, our community to grow and we appreciate you all every day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. It's the coast of Normandy, whose beaches, gold, Juneau, sword, Utah, and Omaha now live in history. Along this narrow stretch of sand and sea, a battle was joined between the world of freedom and the world of tyranny. For nearly five terror-filled years, hundreds of millions of people lived under the Nazi jackboot that had enslaved Europe. The Allied troops were fighting to win a foothold at first and total victory, and if possible, to carve out a dream of a world without war. 20 years ago, in this our own time, the largest invasion in history assaulted Hitler's European fortress. Beaches were beachheads then, and the world was at war. This is the last alerting announcement from Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusades toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you.